In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. You may be seated. My black Labrador retriever, Lipton, who, alas, is no longer with us, Lipton always reminded me that we are creatures of hope. Every morning was Christmas morning for Lipton. He woke up each morning thinking that day was going to be the greatest day, the greatest breakfast, the greatest walk, the greatest play session, the greatest car ride to the greatest destination. Lipton was inspiring for me, always keeping before me the way that hope motivates vibrant living. Biblical faith is nothing it, if it is not a life of great expectations. As Mother Patricia Orlando explained last week, from cover to cover, the Bible is a book about hope. Thus, as we read today, Jeremiah's account of the Lord telling him to buy a field just before the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon, a promise of restoration. Luke, who wrote the gospel from which we read today, Luke describes the coming of that restoration at the beginning of his gospel. That first Christmas morning infused all of life with anticipation of profoundly good things. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. But as our epistle today soberly reminds us, it's possible to get hope wrong. Paul is concerned that some Christians in Ephesus, where Timothy is ministering, have done just that. Some of them are wealthy and are tempted to place their hopes in their riches. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 6. As for those who are rich in the present age, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, and remember that Luke and Paul were traveling companions, they must have had lots of time to compare notes. Jesus warns about building bigger barns. In contemporary terms, what might that mean? Maybe building barns means building an investment portfolio or living from one vacation to another. Maybe it's the addiction of buying one thing after another, always anticipating a delivery from Amazon. Sorry, guilty as charged. It's all, as Paul sagely observes, so uncertain. No, for us, there is one hope, and he has a name. Paul names him in the very first verse of this letter. Hope's name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope, the one who came at Christmas. Jesus Christ, our hope, who comes in the Eucharist week after week. Jesus Christ, our hope, who will come again in glory. Jesus Christ, our hope, the sin bearer. Jesus Christ, our hope, the death conqueror. Jesus Christ, our hope, the ever-present friend. 
No, what Paul has to deal with, with the Ephesians and with us, me, is a matter of misplaced hope. That's what he's addressing in the key verses of today's epistle reading. First Timothy 6, 17, first part of that verse again. Command them not to be haughty. Don't be, the word is hoopselah fronane, which is to be high, hoopselah fronane, minded. Don't be high-minded. Don't think you are better than others, looking down on everybody else because you're above it all, because you've barricaded yourself in. And in Ephesus, that meant this meant people not getting married and not having kids, bulletproofing their lives so that nobody can hurt them because they don't need anybody. In the gospel that we read today, it's the rich man who thinks he's better than Lazarus lying in the street with dogs licking his sores. He's not better. In the Greek and Roman world, a sign that you are inferior is that your conditions are inferior. Your poverty is a sign that that is what you deserve. Dike, pure justice, rules. It even rules the gods. It's one of the great differences that Israel's and then Christians' faith brings. We know things are upside down. Wealth is not a sign of virtue. Being a victim of cancer is not a sign of vice. Getting creamed by a hurricane doesn't happen because you deserve it. Getting passed by doesn't mean you are superior. God makes the rain to fall on the evil and on the good. Nobody, nobody has the right to feel superior. Or, Paul continues in the same verse, verse 17, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What he's saying is don't rest ultimate hope in relative things. Don't rest ultimate hope in contingent things, in temporary things, in iffy things. Paul's just said back in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not least of which is that your wealth can make you a jerk. Not to mention it can go away in a heartbeat. So can health. So can clear skies and, and pleasant breezes. So can a boss who likes you or a life partner you expected to meet your every need. But then Paul's a good coach. Good coaches don't just say, don't do this. They say, do that. I had some good coaches along the way. I had some questionable coaches along the way. And I feel like I learned a few things about coaching. You don't, you don't send a kid up to bat saying, hey, kid, don't be a chump. You send a kid up to bat saying, hey, be a champ. You don't say, hey, don't go up there and strike out. You go up there and say, hey, see the ball, hit the ball, be the ball. You don't tell a kid, hey, don't play back on your heels waiting for the ball to play you. No, you say, get up on your toes and be ready. You play the ball. So Paul's not just going to give the negative, he's going to give the positive. How not to be haughty? How not to become dependent upon things that can go away and let you down? Well, the answer to haughtiness and pride is gratitude. And the answer to hoping in relative things is generosity. So gratitude, as Paul goes on to say in these verses, not on the uncertainty of riches, that's where your hope belongs, but 
Rather, that's not where your hope belongs, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And he's already said back in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, look, marriage and food God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected provided it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by God's word and prayer. I have a great life. I really do, and I know it most of the time. But I get grumpy. Every once in a while, I realize that for myself, and sometimes someone near me gently points it out to me. <laughs> when I do that, I go to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where I find this. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless hearts were darkened. And then I tell myself, if only Adam and Eve had given thanks for all the trees from which they were permitted to eat, and not let themselves get grumpy about the one tree forbidden them, what a different place they would have had in God's story. And then I make a list of as many things I can think of in that moment for which I am grateful. And you know what happens? Mr. Grumpy magically, poof, like some evil genie, just goes away. There's gratitude and there's generosity. As Paul goes on, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. And of that future, Paul had just spoken in verses 14 and 15 that we also read. Keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation, the epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The two happiest people I ever knew were Sister Kathy Gannon, a nun in Fort Lauderdale, my hometown, who lived in the projects. Sister Kathy was a lover of books, but she limited herself to one little bookcase, and she simply loved the people around her. The other is Mort Whitman, whom I've mentioned to you many times. Mort was the son of Dutch royalty on one side and of a Wall Street, ty Wall Street tycoon on the other. Mort poured himself into college students like me, washing my feet metaphorically and literally. And what thanks did he get from me? Well, once I lost his dog and he never said a thing. And another time he loaned me his car and I dinged it before I gave it back to him and he said nothing. Sister Kathy and Brother Mort understood something that Queen Elizabeth 
and her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, understood. As you know, Elizabeth died the longest reigning monarch in England's history. While her casket lay in the crossing of Westminster Abbey, the crossing is the place where the head and the arms meet. While her casket lay in the crossing, symbolically at the heart of Jesus, her crown and her scepter were placed on her behalf on the altar. Elizabeth knew all along on whose behalf she reigned. She knew whom she had been called to serve. And then there was her great-great-grandmother, Victoria, uh, who, by virtue of Queen Elizabeth's reign, had just been reduced to the, merely the second longest reigning monarch in England. Algernon James Pollock tells the story about Queen Victoria. In the story, uh, Victor one of Victoria's chaplains had been preaching on the second coming of the Lord. And afterwards, in conversation with the preacher, the queen exclaimed, oh, how I wish the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why, asked the chaplain, does your majesty feel this very earnest desire? The queen, says Pollock, the queen replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lighted up with deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. Brothers and sisters, to God be the glory, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who, is, who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and glory and eternal dominion through his Son, our hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.